Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Property. I'm Peter Switzer and on tonight's show, we have the famous Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, who explains how you can use property to get rich. We then try to get a feel for the current property market and prices with the CEO of Mortgage Choice, Susan Mitchell, and the CEO of SQM Research, Louis Christopher. Not long ago, Louis was predicting a worst case scenario of a 40% fall in house prices was a possibility. What's he saying about that 40% price fall right now? So without any further ado, let's cross and catch up with my interview with Robert Kiyosaki. I'm talking to the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, one of the best-selling uh, personal finance books of all time. And uh, he's coming to Australia soon, so I'm catching up with him right now for the Switzer Property Show. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Robert, before we start talking about the book and the kind of impact you've tried to have on people when it comes to building wealth, I guess a lot of people ask me, well, who is Robert Kiyosaki? You know, was he a real estate agent? Was he a property developer? And so I, I, know, I know who you are, but a lot of people don't. So tell us, who is Robert Kiyosaki? What brought you to write a book like this? Well, this may sound like uh, blowing smoke, but uh, years and years ago, I was a pilot in Vietnam. And uh, when I was, I was flying off a carrier for the U.S. Marine Corps, and uh, my rich dad wrote me a letter and he said, watch out, the world's going to change. This was January 1972. And it says, the world's going to change. And I said, what does that mean? He says, well, Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard in August of 1971. And he says, that will be one of the biggest changes in world history. And I, I, didn't, I didn't really know what he meant, you know, because you know, we don't learn much about money and all this. So that was, that's what caused me to write this book, which came out in... 2019 is called fake fake money fake teachers and fake assets so what happened when the dollar came off the gold standard the whole world economy shifted to fake money you know they could print as much as they like and so the united states is one of the biggest culprits of spreading you know fake money all over the world and now the world's in this crisis so what caused me to write uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was because I could see something was coming. And then I wrote this book here starting in 1999. It was called Rich Dad's Prophecy. And it was about the stock market crash that would hit in 2016, the biggest crash in history. Well, it didn't come in 2016 because I did not foresee quantitative easing or counterfeiting money, nor did I see zero interest rates. I could not see that. So the real Christ that I predicted in this book, Prophecy, again, I started it in 1999, published in 2002. It hit in March of 2020 this year. And it's a lot worse than I ever thought. But other than that, all I am is an entrepreneur. Uh, I like businesses. I invest in real estate and I buy gold and silver. I've been coming to Aussie since 1976. I love your country. Uh, I came out to Aussie to play rugby, rugby union. Needless to say, we got our asses kicked by you guys, but it was the best ass kicking we've ever had. And I've been in love with Aussie ever since, you know. Robert, 
the interesting thing I find is, you know, with rich dad, poor dad, is that um, you, you concentrate on property. Is that a choice thing that you, you avoid um, looking at trying to make money in the stock market? Oh, uh, no, no. I got out of the stock market in 2016 as, you know, because I could see it coming. I, I just didn't. I just didn't foresee quantitative easing on ZERP. And the primary reason I invest in real estate are two reasons. Number one, I can use debt and I pay no taxes. So it's not property per se, but it's the fact that I can borrow millions and millions of dollars for long term, you know, for like 10, 20 years. And then I pay zero taxes. And with the and with the cash flow I gain from my real estate, is that I invest in gold and silver. That's kind of my business plan. So I have a business, and let's say my business is um, writing books, and from the profits I make in my books, then I invest in property. I, I step it up four to one, so I get a four hundred percent lift in my money. So let's say I have a million dollars in books. Then I'll buy five million in property, which I amortize it, depreciate it, and appreciate it, and then pay no tax legally, and then I buy gold and silver. So that's been my plan. Okay, so when you say you pay no tax, um, obviously the the first model you ever created for rich dad poor dad would have been based on the American tax system because you're an American. How does that apply when you go to other countries like the UK, Europe, Australia, where clearly your books have been really popular, but the tax systems do vary, you know, country to country? Well, that's what everybody says, but that's that's absolutely not true. The rich always invest the same way. Yeah, like Packer and Murdoch and those guys, they invest differently. They pay very little in taxes. All over the world, it's the same. Is, you know, I wrote another book called The Cash Flow Quadrant. It was about E, S, B, and I, employees, small business, self-employed, big business or brand businesses, and uh, investors, uh, professional investors, inside investors. So I was trained by my rich dad to think more like a big business guy and an investor. That's why I know Trump's hated but he and I wrote two books together because we invest the same way. We, we're entrepreneurs, we invest in real estate, and we pay very little in taxes. It's the way all of them. Mm. You know, so Robert, I, I was laying on the, the beach of Sifnos in 2007, reading an analysis of all the rich people that you were talking about, like Rupert Murdoch and the Lowy families from Westfield and Packers. And it was interesting to see exactly what you said, that so much of that wealth came out of people who had businesses, but then they invested in property as opposed to CEOs and people like that. The, the, the long history of very wealthy people were ultimately business people who then invested in property. Correct. And they're entrepreneurs and, um, you know, they're, anyways, it's a different way of looking at the world. That's why I wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad which is only a book on accounting. That's how rich dad part it is, the most boring subject on planet Earth. And then a second book was the cash flow quadrant. In terms of being like my poor dad was an employee and my mom wanted me to be a doctor, the S. And I said, mom, hmm. doctors are smart. And she says, you're right. <laughs>
you better not be a doctor. And then so I I worked quite a, quite a bit of my life to become a business, big business, to build, bridge that into a brand, you know, like Murdoch has Fox. And, uh, you know, mm. there was Packer. And then my hero of all was Alan Bond. You know, I mean, he was the America's Cup guy. And I, mm. I still remember that extremely well because the school I went to in New York, we campaigned Gretel. I mean, uh, we campaigned Weatherly. Which sailed against Gretel in the in the in the twelve meter races, so there's a lot of connection with my, myself and Ozzy. Yeah, now so looking at Rich Dad Poor Dad, and as someone myself who's also an author and also formerly was a an educator before going into business for myself as well, I, I noticed that I think one of the the brilliant aspects of what you brought to the table with Rich Dad Poor Dad was an, abil an ability to turn something which you just described as being a boring accounting book into something that people would read. And, and I, I have looked into your history. You were in sales. You understand selling, which is critical to all businesses. Has, was this an initial goal that you realised that there was a secret to, to building wealth that a lot of people just didn't understand? It was right in front of them, but they couldn't see it. So what you decided to do was to create a narrative that people, A, would read, and B, see quite clearly that there is a simple way of building wealth over time. Correct, correct. Uh, this, this is the book here, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It came out in 1997. Uh, it was turned down by every publisher in America because every publisher is more like my poor dad, they're academics. And my rich dad was an entrepreneur who never went to school. But he, if you go to Waikiki Beach, he, if you look at the Hyatt Regency on Waikiki Beach, that's his property. So as a young boy at the start of nine, growing up in Hawaii, my rich dad, I had to go work for him for free because if I pay you, you'll think like an employee. And then, teach me to about money playing Monopoly. And then he would show me, this is when I was nine, his green houses. <clears throat> it's just like Monopoly. So these are my green houses. And as a young kid, I could understand that. He says, someday it'll be a big red hotel. So next time you go to Waikiki Beach, when this COVID thing clears, go to the Hyatt Regency Hotel right on the beach. He owns the land. You know, Chinese, he's Chinese. My poor dad was Japanese. You know. We're talking about that. <laughs> the Chinese like land. So he leases the land to them. <laughs> yeah. Tell me this. If you had to put into a nutshell for someone who's never heard of you or B, read any of your books, in a nutshell, what would you tell them about your investment method in property? Well, I said, again, it's uh, I wait for crashes like we're in a crash right now. So, you know, we're, we're just standing aside, waiting for the dust to clear. And then we go in. So what happened, you know, there was three, there's been three major crashes now. When I wrote Prophecy, I said there was three, I was a surfer and all ocean swells come in threes. <clears throat> so the first swell hit, you know, in Thailand, the Thai bot crisis. And the second bot was a subprime crisis in 2008, which took Lehman down. And that's why I was predicting in prophecy 2016. So every time there's a crash, that's when, like you know, Warren Buffett right now has 139 billion 
on the sidelines ready to go back in. And, and so the strategy is always the same. You know, the, the professional investors always watching the trends, the cycles, the waves. So um, in 2008 and, and after 9-11, that's when I started to invest in property because it dropped, the price of properties dropped, but so did the interest rate on debt. And there's talk today in America, and this is you know May of 2020, they're talking about going to zero interest, negative interest rates. And I hope they don't do it, but they're so desperate to have people borrow money. And so when I speak to investors and all this, that's why I said, look, property is about debt and taxes. So the more debt I can use and the lower the price of property, the basis I have on the property, it's not any different than a stock, except that I wouldn't go, I wouldn't buy a stock long term on 30 year fixed mortgages. Mm. Do, do you sell property at the top and then wait for a crash and come back in? Or do you buy, because you, you buy low, do I'm you a hold? I'm a buy and hold guy. But um, I don't flip, mm. in other words. You know, I've, I've owned property in Sydney too, great property, Rush Cutters Bay and uh, also in King's Cross. I, I, I should never mm. have sold them. I, they're really great. They, they, the property values took off in Sydney and I can't get back in. So that's why I don't like selling good property. It, it takes too long to find them. You know, you find one, you can live in it for, not, I don't live in them, I rent them forever. But I don't flip. But I did start selling this summer. And the reason is, is because uh, if I could show you a diagram here, this is what most people don't look at. You know, this is above the ground here. This here is like the Federal Reserve Bank. This here is the government. And here is what we call it Wall Street. But the crash came in September of 2019. Down here is called this, you know, it's called the shadow banking system, the repo market the uh, commercial paper market. So this market crashed in 29, September 2019. So we were already exiting because the, the market was too high. But meanwhile, these guys, the stock market kept going up. And so what happened for me is when the COVID appeared, you know, what, it wasn't uh, around December of 2019 to January 2020, it smelled fishy to me. It really smelled fishy. I think it was a cover-up for this crash here. Because what happened down here in September 2019, the interest rates went to 10% in here. In other words, they were charging banks like Commonwealth Bank, HSBC, Wells Fargo, Deutsche Bank. They were charging, these are the biggest banks in the world. These are the hedge funds, these are private equity, these are commercial paper guys in here. These, the biggest banks were going under. And so that's why when interest rates spiked here, we were already exiting. So we weren't selling all of our property. We were selling our non-performing properties, mm. if you know what I mean, and going to a cash position. So the trouble with real estate is liquidity, as you know. It's hard to get in and out of it if you get into it. So we have to be a little early on the cycles. But as a, as a general rule, I don't flip property. I, like I still think about my property on Rushcutters Bay. I should never have sold that damn thing. It was a great property, but I made so much money at the start, I, I, I sold. And I, that taught me the best lesson possible. 
What about those people who have read your book and um, and maybe they haven't fully understood it and they've, as a consequence, ended up with too many properties which they find difficult to service? Now, and I know I've read your book over the years. There is a, a method by which you, you don't overbuy and you are able to service. But obviously you have come across people who just didn't quite get it and have gone mad during a boom and have borrowed heavily against it and, and lenders have been silly enough to lend to them and they find themselves in trouble. What do, you, what do you say to warn people about going too hard, too fast with property? Well, let, let me just show you this diagram here because that's what you're talking about. This is what I base Rich Dad's prophecy on, being a surfer, okay? And it's ocean swells, not shore break. Shore break is wind-driven swells. But in the wintertime in Hawaii where I grew up, the ocean-driven, the winter swells come in sets of threes. And you and I know, when does every amateur come into the market? At the top. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's when the surfers are getting out. So the surfers are kicking out, and the amateurs are coming in. And that happens in any market. You know, like Bitcoin, everybody piled in when it was at the peak. And, and then, it, then it retraced, and then it retraces back again. So that's why you know every professional investor must know, understand must understand debt, they must understand taxes, and they must understand cycles and trends. Mm -hmm. So you know, anyway, that's if I could commercial message reason I should have been coming to Aussie soon, but this this COVID cha changed all things. So I'm traveling with Harry Dent, and Harry Dent is a guy I listen to about cycles, trends, and future occurrences. So every professional investor has got to have an eye on the future. So I think it's May 14th that Harry and I will be doing a webinar, and we'll be talking about what, what's going to happen after this, you know, after 2020, what does Harry see here? And I'm, you know, I'm a student too. I want to hear what Harry has to say about what he sees here, because the world did change in March of 2020, because the biggest crash did happen, in the Dow at least, in March of 2020, it just okay. it went down in three steps in three weeks. It generally takes three months to hit a bear market. So Harry's um, going to be talking about what he sees. I'll be talking about what I see coming up and how you prepare for this change. Okay, well, you, you lead me to my last question. Uh, is exactly a, a, what I want to ask you about. And let me take you back in time a little bit, and you probably remember it. In 1987, when the stock market crashed, it was when I escaped academia and went into the media to explain what in the hell was going on. And I had the great, I had the great opportunity to, to um, interview the great economist, J.K. Galbraith. Uh, and, and of course, there was a time when um, the market was crashing and no one knew what was going on. And I was in Australia. He was on his, in his uh, chalet in Switzerland when I rang him. And he was probably in his 80s at the time. I, I said to him, uh, Mr. Galbraith, what do you think is going to happen? And he gave me an answer I've never, ever forgotten. He said, Peter, there are economists out there who say they don't know. And then there are those poor fellows who don't know they don't know. And I thought, I thought that was a great answer. But I'm going to ask you, what do you think is going to happen over the next year or two? Because you have an opinion, just in a nutshell. I know you're going to flesh it out in May 14, but in, in a nutshell, what do you think is going to happen? Well, for me, like nothing has really changed. I'm just waiting for the dust to clear, okay? And 
as Warren Buffett said, you know, when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. But this crash, this COVID crash, is going has changed the world. So, you know, people like me are doing well because I was prepared for this crash. So, because I'm in financial education, I have a brand called Rich Dad, and all this money is pouring in, and I'm just waiting now to buy more real estate. I'm waiting for the. I'm waiting for the. I'm waiting for the find out what properties float to the surface. You know, I'm, I'm probably not going to be in office buildings. Obviously, I never invested in office buildings anyway. But residential is going to be good because there'll be more and more people still need a house over their heads. So that's not, not changed. And you know, I just bought a whole pile of Perth Mint gold, one ounce gold bars. <laughs> I think the dollar is going to die. I think the U.S. dollar is a criminal operation. I think what this Fed has done by bailing out the biggest banks and bailing out Wall Street and all this has actually destroyed the world. So today, you know, I, I broke my heart when I saw the Aussie drop from about 70 to the dollar to 55 cents on a dollar because China's crashing too. You know, that really disturbs me. But as you know, it's going to flush out the property market in Sydney and Melbourne and all this. So there's, uh, there's going to be opportunity. But you've really got to be a lot smarter this time because I don't think it's going to be a V bottom. I don't think it's just going to bounce back. I think it might go L. might go down and go flat for a while. But I'm preparing it for, to get flat so I don't get sucked into every, you know, every rise in the market. So mm -hmm. I'm going to be more careful. Sydney has... Aussie has some of the best properties in the world. You know, it is one of the greatest places on earth to live. So as far as I'm concerned, you guys are golden. Also, you know, with this iPhone, which came out, I believe, in 2007, there's nobody in Australia who's remote. You know, Australia is just, you know, a speed dial away from London. And so an entrepreneur was going to do very, very well in the future. But... They cannot think like Aussies. They have to think like global citizens. And I think that's going to be the future. So I'm selling throughout the world. I'm redesigning products and all this. And I just change. You know, if I do a book, it's in Japanese, it's done in Chinese and Spanish and all this. So I do just as well. And that's, that's what I'm going to be sharing to the Aussies is that it's a long flight, but it's a short phone call. <laughs> That's good stuff. Robert Kiyosaki, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you. Well, my next guest is Susan Mitchell, who's the CEO of Mortgage Choice. And it'd be good to see what's actually going on in the lending market, because we are trying to work out what's happening to house prices. We saw not long ago, surprisingly, Sydney and Melbourne house prices weren't falling rapidly. Others have predicted that you know, in the month of May, that could change. Let's just see what the lenders are seeing. Susan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad nice to be here. That's a nice 1.5 yes. metres apart. We're socially distancing. Yeah. Exactly. Can't do it with a mask. We, we no. wouldn't hear each other. But still, <laughs> it's great to see you. Um, what are you seeing from Mortgage Choice's point of view? Well, the big movements are, first of all, we've had a big movement from about 14% of our um, new applications for fixed rates going up to 30% in just two months. So that's really? a big movement. Mm. Um, refinance, about 70% of our investment loans are refinancing. 
Um, to lower rates? Yes, lower <laughs> rates. Yeah. Um, and are they fixing on the lower rate or is it, is it hard to do that nowadays with investment loans? I don't actually know that I know the answer mm -hmm. to that question. Yeah. They, they, I just know that they're refinancing and trying to get the best deal that they can. Yeah. And then our owner occupied are refinancing and there's a lot of cash out program, not cash out, cash back mm -hmm. programs with the bank. So you can go to the bank, they will pay you to refinance to pay less money on your monthly payment. It's a great deal. If you're willing to go through the, the time frame, mm. the, some of the times have blown out at some of the big banks just yeah. because they are offering these cash back programs. Is that, apart from the, they're helping the economy by getting yep. everyone to lower interest rates, yep. and we know the banks are, in, are, are a part of the rescue program. Yes, absolutely. Is it also helping them cement in and keep their customers longer than they would have if they didn't do this? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, so there's a couple of things like a that are happening. Handcuff. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, to the customer's advantage, yeah. they are yeah. they are paying less. Yeah. So you've got people with deferred payments. Of course, they can't go anywhere. You have um, one bank has moved all of its customers to the lowest legal payment. If they were paying extra, they're now on the lowest legal payment. So yeah. that's going to cement their For, bargain. Force them to pay the lowest amount. They have automatically shifted. Yeah. The customer can always go back in and pay extra. Yeah. But they have reset everybody. So that's yeah. going to protect the, the principal rundown on their book. Yeah. Um, we've had a, a, a couple of others that are just trying to get... The banks are open for business. Yeah. And they are refinancing, and we have a refinancing boom going on. And those cashback offers oh. with these low rates, the best fixed rate I've seen is 2.09. For how long? For two years. So I'd, why I'd wouldn't you? It, I'd love it for 10. <laughs> but why wouldn't you? If you get a cashback offer, get 2.09, oh. um, it's great. So that customer is going to stay there for a while. Yeah. There are, there are a number of questions I, I have to ask you, but sure. I think... The, the, the fundamental question is, are Australians still looking to buy property during this unusual time? Broker, I asked my brokers that because I said, is it just all refi? But no, we still have people buying that next home. There are people who are not in, um, in COVID-affected industries mm. and they still have their PAYG job mm. and they are taking this opportunity to buy that next home. The Hunt for an opportunity. Yes. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I'm going to be really interested to see, which might be a little bit sad, is if the people not paying rent mm. forces some investment properties on the market. Mm. So do you have some investment properties coming on the market because the people don't want to cover yeah. the negative cash? And so mm. do you see some more houses coming on the market and do you start to see more activity? Mm. Have, have you had any feedback from your people at the coalface that that um, investors uh, are under a bit of repayment stress? We haven't seen it quite yet. I haven't heard that anecdotally from my brokers. I guess it's still early days. But, it's, be but it's got to be yeah. happening. Yeah. It's got to be happening if um, people are going to their landlords and asking for rent, rent stoppage. Because mm. some people are going to do it opportunistically yep. and then other people will have a real need. Mm. And either one is going to affect the investor. Mm. What about um, the attitude of um, banks towards mortgage brokers? You know, there's always been a, a bit of a battle between the success of mortgage brokers and the fact that mortgage brokers have taken a lot of business off the banks. Is this going to be an opportunity for the banks to 
shift and get a little bit more share back from customers? From the brokers? Um, there's always a tension there. Mm. Because the, the brokers have been winning lately. The, 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 the brokers have been winning that and the brokers have been giving, uh, offering the consumer an amazing opportunity to shop around and get the best loan for them, whereas yeah. a bank can only offer what they've got. But if you've got a cash back offer and a low rate, I'm sure that this is an opportunity for the banks to try and grab share from the brokers, absolutely. Mm. I got this question put to me on my small business show on 6PR on Monday, and a guy said, I go to my lender, a bank, every month trying to renegotiate and refi down to a lower rate, and the bank says no all the time. And his argument was that his uh, loan-to-value ratio was 80%. Um, and I said, he said, you know, would other lenders be possibly more considerate than my lender? And I said, well, what I would do is go to a mortgage broker because they would know what lenders are the most considerate. Is 80-20 the cutoff nowadays or are there lenders out there that might do 85-15? There, there are some lenders out there that might do 85. I think the higher LVRs are gone. Mm. The norm is much closer to 80 at this point in yeah. time. Yeah. They're just concerned, I think, about, they're just being careful if there should be some property reduction. Yeah, yeah. Reductions in value. And, but, but if anyone could find it, it would be mortgage brokers because they know the, the, Absolutely. Full, the full gamut of potential. But he may put, will pay a higher rate because he's not as uh, a good risk because he's at, might be at 1090 or 1580. That, that's true. But I think that the main thing, everybody is responding to COVID in a slightly different way. Yeah. So the most important thing is to go in and say, this is my situation, can you find someone that matches my situation? And that's exactly what a mortgage broker is here to do for the consumer. Mm. Um, a really interesting development came involving ME Bank or ME Bank, it's ME Bank, isn't yes. it? Where they decided that they wanted to um, dip into their customers' um, redraw facilities. Yes. Are any of the banks doing that? Well, I just told you about the one where they've reset the to the lowest legal minimum payment, yeah. which isn't like taking the redraw, but again, it's resetting to a lower payment. Mm. Um, I have heard something similar where there are some dormant credit cards, like if you haven't used your credit card for two yeah, years, right. it gets canceled or gets the limit reduced. Um, I'm not sure that the, the ME situation wasn't more of an IT problem mm -hmm. that maybe those redraw amounts weren't being correctly reflected because it's only their older products it was mm -hmm. only the products that were over five years mm. so it did involve like retiree type people oh, it's, wasn't it's, it's, it and the, the most important thing was the communication problem mm. they they knew about it for quite a while yeah. they didn't talk to their customers they didn't explain to them what was going on there may have been a very legitimate reason to do this mm. but they certainly did not communicate that to those people. So they had expectations of money being there that would protect them if something yeah. went wrong. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they blinked and it was gone. Yeah. That's just, everyone's, that's just yeah. a, a nightmare. And effectively, for people who don't understand, these are people who have overpaid their mortgage. It's in a sense, they're storing their money inside their... That's what, they're, that's yeah. what they think they're doing. Yeah, yes. and, and to try and reduce their overall yep. payments over time yep. and all that sort of stuff. But the, the bank sees it slightly differently. And it seems to me then, 
if someone wants to do that, they're better off storing their money in an offset account where that, that could never happen. Is that, is that? That's my understanding, yeah. is it that the banks do have the right to change the redraw amounts, but the offset account is considered a separate account. Mm. The only other thing that happens on the offset account, and I'm not a lawyer, mm. but you just want to make sure that if the offset account is larger than the 250 amount that you would get back if something happened to the institution. You just want mm. to make sure how you handle that. Yeah, that's a good, good yeah. piece of advice. Yeah. What else is going on in your industry that you think people need to know? Well, there's a couple of other things that are just happening with the banks that I think would be interesting for people to know, yep. which is they're starting to adjust their credit policy and the way that they treat income other than your wages. Yeah. So like that's Airbnb income, for example? Yes, that one. <laughs> or investment income, yeah. dividends and interest, um, commissions, mm. um, overtime, mm. bonuses. They're starting to, um, they would probably give you like maybe 80 to 100% towards your amount of cash that you have available to pay off your to pay mm. your loan. Now you're starting to see that come down to 50 to 70% that they will consider. Seen as a less reliable source of income. Yes. Therefore they'll lend you less. Absolutely. So that's 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 a change that's coming in. Mm. Um, the other change that's coming in is they are they are pulling back on the applications from people in the COVID affected industries. So if you're in hospitality mm. or you're in tourism. Um, they might not look at your application or they might do a lot more digging and looking and verifying right up to the last minute. Mm. And the third one I would say is that there's a lot of institutions that even though you've had your approval, they will check your employment one last time before they settle mm. to see if there's been a change in your circumstance. Mm. And if there has been a change in your circumstance, they will have to decide whether to continue with the loan or um, stop it. And what about, this was something they were doing last year, maybe before when house prices were falling, postcode discrimination. They're, they're still going on? Yes, that still goes on. Yeah. That still goes on. So, so in many ways, someone looking for a, for a home, um, finding out what postcodes are vulnerable or less liked by banks could be a really important piece of research because you might find your, your dream home, but the bank doesn't like the, the postcode. The address, exactly. Mm -hmm. It could be that or it could be the structure of your income is such that you need to go to somebody that'll give you a little more credit for all that overtime you're working. Because mm. you're maybe still working that overtime. Okay, and the non-banks are more likely to be in that space than the well, banks? Well, actually the non-banks um, are the ones that have pulled back the most Mm. It's noticeable, and I think that's they're a little bit nervous about the funding costs mm. and what's happening there. So the non-banks have pulled back the most. We're seeing a little bit of flight to quality. Yeah. We do see some people leaving some of the smaller institutions and wanting to refinance to mm. a big four. Mm. I think they feel that it's a little bit safer. So we are seeing some flight to quality. Okay. And this is not necessarily your beat, but you might have heard something about it, because I know a number of our financial planning clients, older ones, were really scared that um, banks, the government might call in what they call bail-in um, situations, like what, ha what happened in Cyprus, where a, a, a deposit that was once upon a time worth, say, two hundred thousand, you'd only get one hundred and fifty of it of it back to help the bank out. Have you have you come across any clients worried about that kind of thing? Not so much that, 
but in that flight to quality comment I made earlier, mm -hmm. what I'm thinking about is some customers concerned that they were a smaller institution with an offset in excess of the 250. Okay. So that they were moving to a larger institution that they felt would, the government would go all out to protect and they had a better chance mm -hmm. of making sure mm -hmm. that their offset account was safe. So mm -hmm. that's similar type concept, yeah. but not as specific as the example you've given. Uh, my my um, research tells me that our banks are, whether they like it or not, some of the safest in the world. I think that's true. And I think that they are really, have been called up to serve on the front line here. Yeah. And, I, and I have to say, even though it's been a bit crazy these last couple of months, they've actually done a really, a yeah. really great job. And the thing that's been, the other thing that's been great for brokers is that they are having to go, it's brought forward a lot of innovation mm. because the banks all of a sudden really quickly have had to decide, what am I gonna do about remote verification of identity? What am I gonna do yeah. about interviews? What am I going to do about automatic signatures? How do I value if I can't inside the house? house. So <laughs> yeah, what's happened is all of a sudden you have had all this innovation mm. get crammed into two months. Mm. And the thing that's so great is if we can just not go backwards. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Good point. That's Susan Mitchell. She's the CEO of Mortgage Choice. Well, it's the times like these you like to check in with someone who watches the real estate market 24-7. Louis Christopher, the founder of SQM Research, is just the guy. Louis, thanks for joining us. Nice to be with you, Peter. All right, mate, let's talk just generally. Uh, what do you think is happening to house prices around the country and how bad do you think it will be? I think they are falling. I don't think that we are actually outright crash right now. I think vendors are holding their ground as much as they can. There are few forced sales at this point in time, but quite clearly buy demand has taken quite a few steps back. Uh, there has been in recent weeks, a pickup in auction clearance rates in Sydney and Melbourne from record low levels. And in part, that is as a result of the lifting of the auction bans in New South Wales and Victoria. But I do not believe we're getting back to anywhere near the levels of demand that we had for housing before this crisis. Got some information here which I'd like you to react to. Uh, the national residential rental vacancy jumped to, uh, to uh, well, by, I guess, 2.6% in April, up um, uh, 2% from March. Uh, what does that say? That's telling us that the rental market's in a lot of trouble, Peter. Uh, we have seen a huge rise in rental vacancy rates, particularly in the inner city locations of Sydney and Melbourne, as well as holiday locations. It is no coincidence that these areas are also full of Airbnb properties. Uh, and what we believe is occurring is that there is a large number of uh, Airbnb property owners attempting to lease out their property on a longer-term basis, and, of course, they're struggling to do that. Uh, this is all as a result of the closure of the international border as well as the state borders. The international border is affecting the rental market on two fronts. 
It's affecting short-term arrivals, which thereby affects uh, demand for Airbnb properties. And it's also affecting the longer-term leasing market because we're having right now zero net migration. Last year, we had net migration of about 240,000 people. This year, it's likely to be 30 to 40,000 people, depending on when the border opens again. And of course, that means a huge decrease in, in underlying demand for what we normally actually get. The thing is, this year, we are estimated to complete about 170,000 dwellings. But because we're getting zero net migration, the real demand for those new dwellings will only be about for 70 to 80,000 dwellings. So as you can see, when you just run through some of the headline numbers here, there is a surplus of property right now and there's going to be a greater surplus as the year progresses. What are you seeing in the, the building approval and construction numbers and, and then take us forward as a consequence of what you think will happen? Well, as mentioned, uh, for 2020, uh, completions will be about 170,000 dwellings. When we look at building approvals, which have been, of course, on the downward trend even before this crisis, it is likely that next year we'll have about 150,000 to 130,000 dwellings completed. Uh, now, much depends, of course, when the international border opens. Uh, there is a possibility here, Peter, that the federal government might respond next year and increase the caps on net migration. So this year, the target was about for 160,000 in terms of net migration. I wanted to reduce it from last year's 240. They may well come back and say, well, given the huge shortfall we've had in 2020, let's have a cap for net migration of, say, 300,000 for 2021 or 2022. Now, that may well contain some political risk in doing that, of course. So that's a very much a question mark in terms of how they will respond. But I don't think we should not completely discount the possibility of the federal government responding by lifting net migration when the border does open. In your numerical or statistical work, do you ever disaggregate investment properties from owner, you know, owner individual homeowner? Home do you disaggregate it? Because I would have thought that, okay, investment properties prices could be falling because of the Airbnb effect that you talked about. But when it comes to individual ownership of a home, are the prices falling slower there? Uh, Peter, in my experience, uh, what you do find is that areas which are um, red hot, with investor activity, and they, they often can be, for example, holiday locations such as the Gold Coast, can be more adversely impacted by markets such as these. Unfortunately, it's hard to get um, timely uh, segregation between investment property as well as just standard owner-occupier property. We normally get a good snapshot when we see an update on the census data. Uh, but thereafter, all you, all you can do is estimate. Uh, when we consider areas which are more investor heavy, such as the Gold Coast, we are seeing issues on the rental front right now. Uh, but uh, I'm not seeing 
um, big falls in prices uh, in those investor-heavy areas quite yet. As mentioned, I do believe the housing market prices have fallen, uh, but we're not seeing deep falls right now. In part, that is a result of very few forced sellers and other vendors looking at the market and saying, I don't really want to sell into this market right now and I can hold. Yeah. If we get a, a better economic rebound than was, say, predicted a month ago uh, and we get back to work and there's no second wave infections, what, what do you think that will do to the spring um, property sales? We, uh, about 30 odd days ago, we came out with two scenarios in terms of how the market could play out. And that is, uh, one, a, a bleaker scenario where we have a second wave come through uh, and we have lockdown again, or two, this V-shaped recovery. Uh, and the view was that the V-shaped recovery could occur if we were to see a lifting of restrictions in May, as what we are getting now, and they stay off and we do get back to work. So we do believe that the probabilities have increased for a V-shaped recovery. And it would be something along the lines of this, where we see negative dwelling prices for the June quarter, but positive dwelling price rises or a rebound in the September and December quarters. Now, I think, Peter, the question is, will we see a complete V, if you know what I mean? Do we get back to where we were pre-crisis? And I still think there's a serious question mark on that while the international border remains closed. Still be affected by, well, we don't know what's going to happen until we do feel confident about we're going to be quite um, you know, resistant to paying silly prices uh, for a house and, and, and people might not even buy it all. I guess the, my final question to you, Louis, is if, if someone is actually in the property market, and I have talked to real estate agents, there's still plenty of buyers out there. I guess public servants aren't feeling threatened and they might be seeing this as a buying opportunity. Would you be, if you were in that sort of situation, secure employment, secure income, and you were in the, uh, the, the property market, would you be turning up to every auction and open house in the area where you want to buy? You know, Peter, the truth is right now, there's, there's actually not that many bargains out there for home buyers. Um, as, an, you know, as mentioned, the market hasn't fallen a lot. Um, and I personally don't think that there is any rush to get into the market right now. I'm not expecting uh, huge price rises from here. I think buyers can take their time. Uh, and, you know, as we know, uh, with all markets, it's very difficult to tie in the bottom uh, or the top. And uh, I think for a long-term owner-occupier, first-time buyer, trying to tie the market shouldn't be the, the, the order of the day. Um, there isn't a lot of stock around as well as discussed. So I think that may well improve when we get into the spring period. Uh, but yeah, look, uh, overall, no need to rush into the market at this stage. Louis Christopher, as always, mate, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Peter.